just started a series last week called Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. And I told a couple, you know, examples of things I wish I had never heard uttered before. Uh, so 20, almost 20 years ago now, one of my good buddies was a general surgeon, and uh, he and I took a bunch of youth group kids down to Jacksonville, Florida, to see the U.S. national team play in a soccer game against Germany. And it was, I don't know how many hours the ride was down to Jacksonville. He basically entertained us for about five and a half hours with stories of general surgery. And I can pretty much tell you that after every single one of those stories, I said to myself, I just wish I hadn't heard that. You know what I mean? Like, I did not need to know that. And I don't know about how many of you have buddies who are in medicine or whatever, or nurses, you know, friends who are nurses or moms who are nurses. But it's so funny, like, we have another friend who's a nurse, and we had dinner with her not too long ago. And, you know, they just break out these stories at the dinner table like it's nothing. You know what I mean? And I'm not even going to go into all the details. Whatever. Anyway, you got it. You know what I'm saying? They're just things you wish people had never said. So Jesus um, was filled with saying things that were, frankly, offensive, right? Jesus said all sorts of things that were shocking. And, uh, and the truth is that uh, he is a loving physician. And the reason he says those things is because we need to hear them. And part of what he was doing was shocking us so that we'd be prepared to hear them. Part of what we talked about last week was in Luke chapter 6 when Jesus is speaking to the, you know, the, the crowds, but also the disciples as well. And he said this to them. He said, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also, turn the other cheek. And part of what we talked about last week is he wasn't just talking about pacifism. He was basically saying that when you're in a relationship with someone, on the one hand, you need to stand in front of them and you need to fight for justice. We talked about Martin Luther King. But at the same time, when you're done wrong, when you're insulted, when you're abused, you need to maintain a position of forgiveness. In other words, you need to stay put and you need to turn the other cheek. In other words, saying, hey, I'm still here. I still desire to forgive you, to have a relationship with you. It's this bizarre sort of tension uh, that Jesus is talking about. And then, of course, in the rest of this passage, he tells the people who, by the way, have real enemies. He says, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good to them. I want you to bless them. I want you to pray for them. And uh, boy, I tell you what, those are things that some of us wish Jesus had never said because some of us have real enemies. And what he's inviting us to do is to offer real forgiveness and real love for these real enemies. Uh, Today, we have another um, thing that sometimes I wish Jesus hadn't said. It's also going to be hard. It's going to be challenging, but it's going to be good. Let's take a moment. And before we jump in, let's pray. Father, I thank you very much for this day. I thank you for these people that you have drawn here. I thank you that um, regardless of what their motivations are or were, um, that your motivation is, uh, is to allow them to have an encounter with you, the living God. And so, Father, I pray that, um, that no one would be able to leave here today without having encounter with you, the author of reality, the King. Uh, And Father, I pray that, um, that you would draw their hearts into submission. You would draw their hearts in love towards you. Uh, I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in a few minutes, um, we're going to have a clip that is taken from a TV show that was very popular in the 80s. Uh, In fact, um, I would argue that the TV show that we're about to watch a little clip from was probably the most popular show of the 80s. Maybe that or Dukes of Hazzard, I'm not sure which one. But in this show that we're going to watch a clip from in a minute, um, basically it was about a family. And, uh, and one of the things that you saw over and over again from this family was sort of wise parenting uh, from the mom and also from the dad. Now, unfortunately, the show that we're going to be watching a clip from is called The Cosby Show. 
And uh, in recent months, we know that Bill Cosby has come under fire for, legitimately for some things that he did that were very wrong. But that doesn't change the fact that his character, um, Cliff Huxtable here, is about to give us some very good advice on parenting. So let me just turn your eyes up to the screen and ask you to listen. Okay, so that's good, right? That's good. Part of what's interesting in watching that clip, probably from the mid-80s, is the cost of an apartment, the cost of living in Manhattan as $400. That'd be like literally $20, you know, $200 now. Anyway, but part of what Cliff Huxtable there is doing is he is teaching his son about the cost of living, right? The cost of being independent, the cost of being out on your own. And it's obvious that Theo has not counted the cost of what is required um, to be an independent uh, if not, you know, even though it's a regular person, or in his word, or regular people. He didn't count the cost. In the same way, part of the point we're talking about today, part of what Jesus is going to talk to us about in a minute, is counting the cost of being one of his followers, counting the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, counting the cost of being a Christian in that language, if you want to use it. And so in a passage in Luke chapter 14, Jesus says one of those things that's very difficult. He says one of those things that's very hard about counting the cost following him. So I'm going to jump in really quickly. We're going to be looking at verses 25 through 33 of Luke chapter 14. Now great crowds accompanied him. This is a theme throughout. 
and turned and said to to them, he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks him or asks for terms of peace. So therefore, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. See what Jesus is doing? What he's doing is he's saying, look, all you crowds, all you throngs of people that are following me, he said, you need to understand the real cost of being one of my followers. You need to understand the real cost of being one of my disciples. And the truth is the message for those people 2,000 years ago is absolutely no different from the message that we need to hear Jesus giving us today in 2015. So let's see very quickly, what does Jesus say about the cost of following him? The first thing we see Jesus say to the people is he said, the cost of following him is that you must choose me, essentially, over safety and security. So Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to choose me, following me, being my disciple, being faithful to me, even over your own safety and security. Listen to uh, these verses we're going to read here. He says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate, again, the word here is maseo, like misogyny, his own father and mother and his wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hear that? If you, you know, if you don't, if you're not willing to hate all of those people, you can't be my disciple. Now, let me call time out really quickly and say from right up front, this is the phrase. This is the, I wish Jesus had never said this thing phrase. This is the, the really hard sayings of Jesus place right here where he says this. You've got to hate all of these people. Now, let me call time out really quickly and say this. Do you think Jesus really means we're supposed to hate our families? Do you think that? You know, last week he told us to love our enemies, Wouldn't it be ironic if he said, all right, love your enemies, but hate your family, right? Uh, What do you think Jesus is doing here? What he's doing is he's speaking in hyperbole, right? So hyperbole is sort of this this way of speaking where you're basically uh, offering overstatement for effect. In other words, you're saying something that's sort of this, you know, huge statement on purpose. It's enormous in order to catch people's attention for sort of an effect. In Greek, this word for hyperbole or or the phrase is overcasting almost like throwing a net or fishing, you know, sort of throwing a fishing line. You're going to basically shoot for this, but you're going to try to hit it so much, you're going to throw way over it in order to make sure to get people's attention. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's speaking in hyperbole, right? Overstatement for effect. So we, we use hyperbole all the time in our lives. We say, you know, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse, right? The reality is you can't really eat a horse. You're speaking hyperbolically. You know, when you look at someone and you say she or he is as old as the hills, you're not really saying that that person is as old as dirt, right? You're just saying that they're a little bit older. You know, when you say that I'm full as a tick, you're not really saying that you're like a tick and that you're going to fall off and be able to roll around on your back and can't get up. That's not what you're saying, right? You're speaking hyperbolically. You know, every now and then I share stories about growing up in in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, where I'm from. 
Again, it's this town that sounds exactly like it is. And I went to Traveler's Rest High School, where I mentioned over and over again that the top, you know, um, the main sports of my high school were tractor pull and coon hunting, right? And I tell you about how our FFA, Future Farmers of America, chapter won the state title 11 years in a row. This is all true, right? That's not hyperbolic. That's true. There were two kids that were in the FFA um, whose names were Dickie and Melvin. Those were their real names, Dickie and Melvin. And they really were sort of attached to the hip. And they were, you know, good old boys. And um, anyway, I'm not going to go into too much detail about Dickie and Melvin. But for whatever reason, when I was writing the sermon, I remember this experience one time with Dickie and Melvin. I must have been like in 10th grade. And I remember Dickie, who was the smaller guy of the two, wearing his FFA jacket. And I remember him telling me about the fact that his dad had a boat. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, I was kind of listening to him talk about this boat. And he said, yeah. He said, I got a speedboat so fast, it'll leave skid marks on water. Right, you hear that? Skid marks on water. Hyperbole. Got it? All right, have we made the point well enough? Yeah. So the point is Jesus is speaking hyperbolically. So was Dickie, right? They were speaking hyperbolically. Overstatement. And so when Jesus says that in order to be his disciple, you have to hate your family, he's using that figure of speech. Part of the reason we know that is because in Matthew chapter 10, we have a parallel sort of story uh, or section of Jesus preaching a very similar message. That was one of the things that Jesus did as an itinerant preacher. He would preach the same message in various places. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus, again, speaking to crowds, says this, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So what Jesus is saying is he's saying this. He's saying, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be my follower, then you actually have to love me more than you love your family. You need to love me more than you love your mom. You need to love me more than you love your dad. You need to love me more than you love your children, right? And so the good news is that you don't actually have to hate your family, but the bad news is you have to do something that's a, an, a, a massive sacrifice. You know, if right now you're hearing me say these things and you're going, oh, I could do that, well, that's either a sign that you're single and you don't have a family yet, maybe, because I'm telling you, it'd be a lot harder than you think it would be. Or it might mean that you've got such a tense relationship with your family that you're like, hey, I could, I could easily hate them. That's not a problem for me. You know what I mean? And, uh, and that would be bizarre, especially in light of Jesus saying, love your enemies. The intent of what Jesus is saying here is he's basically saying this. He says, you've got to love me more than all those things. And it actually goes deeper than that. Jesus is always going sort of from the surface level down into the depth of your heart. See, in the ancient Near East, so 2,000 years ago, and even still today in many respects, in the ancient Near East, family was everything. In parts of the world today, family is everything. And the reason it's everything is because family represents security and family represents safety. The reason it represents safety is because when Jesus was living, you, you wanted to have as many children as possible in order to defend yourself against other tribes. And so if you had a bunch of boys who could fight, then you were safe. And if you didn't have children, either as a mother or as a father, then you were vulnerable, right? It, it represented safety. And so Jesus is more, he's saying here a lot more even than just uh, hating those family members. He's saying, you need to choose me over your own safety. The family represented security. The more children you had when you um, got older, the more people you had to take care of you. There were no retirement homes, right? There was no S&K cafeteria. 
or sort of Shoney's breakfast bar you could pull up to in the morning. You had to have people feed you and take care of you. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, you need to be willing to love me more than you love your own safety and more than you love your own security. The reason this is meaningful to us today is because many of us in this room come to Jesus. We say, hey, I want to follow you, Jesus. I prayed to receive Christ, Jesus. I want to give you my life, Jesus. But the reason that we really come to him is because ultimately what we value, the things that is most important to us in life, is our safety and our security. And we come to Jesus, and we kind of hope that what Jesus will do is he'll, he'll bless that idol, or he'll bless that thing that we really value. And in doing so, what we're doing is we're basically using Jesus. We're using him like a genie in the bottle. You know, if we come to you, Jesus, will you, will you offer me safety? Will you offer me security? But what you need to understand is that Jesus over and over and over again says exactly the opposite. He says, following me is actually going to threaten your safety. Following me is actually going to threaten your security, right? I mean, how many of the disciples died as martyrs? 11 of the 12. It wasn't very safe. It wasn't very secure to follow Jesus. Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to pay that price? The cost of following Jesus is not only that you choose him over your safety and security, the cost of following Jesus is you also choose him over, over wealth. Look at verses 28 and 29. They say this, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, again, Jesus is using an example here of counting the cost, which is the context of this passage. But again, it's going, he's going deeper than that. And, uh, and he's getting down to sort of our idols. That's part of what he's doing. That's why Steve read all the verses that he read and all the passages he read today. Let me ask you this. Um, what are the purposes for a tower? Or maybe more uh, importantly, what, are, what were the purposes of a tower 2,000 years ago? Well, one reason for a tower, would it, would it, it would have been to sit on sort of your fortress walls, and so it would have been protection, for protection for a king and kingdom. Another reason that you might have a tower is, uh, you know, basically there's the Tower of Babel, where the people built this ziggurat, a temple, that sort of went up to the sky, so it was an edifice to humanity or an edifice to religion. Or the other reason in the ancient Near East you'd have a tower would be a, a form of a watchtower to, to sit over your fields where you had crops, where you would protect your fields from marauders, you'd protect your fields from animals, or you'd protect your flocks from animals. In other words, um, the tower was to protect your wealth, right? To take care of your wealth and to make sure it didn't get stolen. Now, the people that Jesus is talking to here are not kings. They don't have castles. They don't have fortresses. The people that Jesus is talking to are not priests, right? They don't need ziggurats. They don't need temples. It's not that type of tower. The type of tower that Jesus is talking about is the type of a tower that somebody who had flocks of sheep or, or farmers who needed to guard their fields. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus was addressing these people's desire to protect their wealth. And again, he was hinting at their idolatry. See, Jesus talked about three things a lot, right? He talked about hell. We know that over and over again. That's a very uncomfortable thing. Uh, he talked about the kingdom of heaven, this idea where everything that is wrong will be made right. But then he also talked about wealth a lot. And the reason he talked about wealth over and over and over again is because he understood that wealth is one of those deep, deep idols of our hearts. And so we look to wealth to take care of us. We trust in our wealth to give us our identity. We trust in our wealth to give us security. We trust in our wealth to be able to develop the kind of life that we want, right? And we trust in it uh, in other, instead of trusting in him. In other words, we're tempted, again, to create an idol 
out of our wealth, and in particular, as we talked about with family and safety and security, our tendency is actually to turn to Jesus and to follow him precisely so that he will protect that idol, so that he will give us our wealth, right? You hear that theme over and over again in churches today, whether that's on TV or in other places. But I've got news for you. That is not how God operates, right? God is not all that concerned with your wealth. In fact, over and over again, Jesus made the point uh, that uh, animals have holes to live in and birds have nests. But if you're going to follow me, you're going to put your wealth at risk. Again, what Jesus is saying is the cost of following me is that your allegiance has to really be to me even over your quest for wealth. When I was at Covenant College um, in 1990, uh, as a freshman, I met a guy named Caleb Ludwig. Caleb was from St. Louis and had a very interesting story. Uh, He had grown up in Nashville and actually moved to St. Louis when he was in seventh grade. Um, When living in Nashville, his his, uh, dad was a lawyer, and his dad just wasn't any lawyer. His dad was a lawyer to country musicians and to Christian uh, musicians. In fact, one of Caleb's favorite stories is there was a Christian contemporary group called Petra, I don't know if anybody heard of that. You have to be like 40 to know who Petra is. Anyway, but, uh, but Petra broke up in his living room because his dad was sort of there, you know, representing them legally. They broke up in his living room. He said it was a huge moment for him, negative moment. Anyway, and his mom was a CPA, so she was a, a public accountant for these same, you know, country musicians and Christian musicians, and his parents made a lot of money. Even back then, they made what would be a lot of money today. What's interesting is his parents became Christians when he was in middle school. And his parents, as they became Christians, basically said, all of a sudden, sudden money doesn't mean so much to me anymore. Wealth doesn't mean so much to me anymore. And what became the most important thing to them was finding out about Jesus, knowing him, knowing God. And so they both quit their positions at their uh, firms. They moved to St. Louis in order to start taking classes at Covenant Seminary. While taking classes at Covenant Seminary, they worked as the janitors for the whole seminary. And so here's this man who had been a high-powered lawyer. Here's this woman who had been a a high-powered CPA. They both said, you know what? Wealth no longer means anything to us anymore. What we really care about is following Jesus and learning more and more about him. They own the distinction of being the only people that I have ever known of who took every single class that Covenant Seminary had to offer. It's kind of an amazing story. And part of what they modeled to Caleb, their son, and their other uh, children as well, is that wealth isn't anything in comparison with Jesus. Now, let me call time out here and say this. Um, If you decide to follow Jesus, if you have decided to follow Jesus, this doesn't mean wealth is a bad thing. It doesn't mean you need to quit your job. It doesn't mean that you need to give away all your money. In fact, um, I would say more often than not, it, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, I think wealth is a good thing, just like family is a good thing, just like safety and security is a good thing. God entrusts us with wealth. He entrusts us with jobs. And it's our goal to basically say, all right, God, everything I have is ultimately yours. And so I'm not saying that you have to quit your job and become a missionary or a pastor, uh, but it does mean that Jesus demands that you love him even more than you love your wealth, that you look to him for security, that you look for him to safety, and you look to him for well-being. Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to pay that price? The third thing we see in this section is that the cost of following Jesus not only means that you love Jesus more than your safety and security, it doesn't only mean that you love Jesus more than your wealth, but it also means that the cost of following him is that you must choose Jesus 
over your kingdom, right? Over your power, over your glory, over your honor. Listen to verses 31 and 32. Again, Jesus is using this as an example, not only of counting the cost, but also of getting down to our deeper idols. Verse 31 says this, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace, right? So, so in the same way that Jesus used this example about tower building, about saying, hey, make sure you got enough money to complete the tower, but it was really about getting down to a deeper idol. In the same way here, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, look, if you were a king and you were going out to war against somebody, you'd make sure you had enough people to go sort of conquer that other group of people first. Count the cost. But more than doing that, Jesus, again, is drilling down into the hearts of the people to say, what's your idol? And the idol beneath this is, let me, let me say it this way, is why do kings go to war? Kings go to war either to protect their kingdoms, to maintain their kingdoms, or they go to war in order to expand their kingdoms, right? And part of what Jesus is doing here is he's talking to these farmers, these sheep herders, these fishermen, as he's saying, again, some of you are going to come to me, and what you're really going to want is for me to bless your kingdom, right? What you're going to really want from me is to be a genie in a lamp, and if you follow me, you're going to sort of want me just to make sure that your kingdom stays put or that you maintain power, that it gets even larger. And again, Jesus doesn't operate that way at all, right? It's why Jesus taught us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, right? Because in our world, in our desire for our own kingdom, what we want is to say, hallowed be my name, right? I want people to look at me and say I'm the best teacher. I want people to look at me and say I'm the best athlete. I want people to look at me and say I'm the best mother. I want people to look at me and say, you know, that guy's a great professor or businessman, whatever, right? Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? When it's about our power and our glory and our honor and our kingdom, not only do we want the glory, right? But we want, we want things to happen our way. We want life to revolve in a way that, uh, that, that works for us. It's our kingdom. And Jesus, when he teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer, is praying us out of our kingdoms and into his Father's kingdom, right? And again, what Jesus is saying here is that the cost of following him is that you lay your kingdom down at the feet of the rightful king, right? That you lay your kingdom down at the feet of the one true king. So Levi, my 10-year-old and I, right now are almost done with the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? So we read The Hobbit, boom. And then we read the first two books. We're in the middle of the third, but we're reading The Return of the King. And if you guys are familiar with the movies or the books, then you know that the, the basic theme of the story is this. There's this, um, this sort of amazing kingdom called Gondor. And uh, Gondor is, uh, is this place where for years and years, centuries and centuries, they've, been, they've sort of held the power of men against the evil forces of Middle Earth, right? But what's interesting is there hasn't been a king upon the throne in Gondor now for, for years and years. They've been awaiting, awaiting the arrival of the true king who's able to sit on the throne. And so as they've been waiting, there's been a series of stewards that, uh, that, that rule Gondor and rule that kingdom. But what those stewards are supposed to be doing is keeping the kingdom intact and ruling the people on behalf of this, this, this future king that is to be coming. Well, in the movie, the, the steward of the time is this man named Denethor. And it becomes very clear that Denethor is a very, very unhealthy person, that he's very bitter 
about that he doesn't have the truth throne. In fact, there's a section in uh, The Return of the King that's a reminder of just how Denethor isn't able to sit on that throne. Listen to this quote. It says this. This is about when Mary and Gandalf entered into the throne room. And it talks about Mary's perception. Awe fell upon him as he looked down that avenue of kings long dead. At the far end upon a daze of many steps was set a throne under a canopy of marble shaped like a crowned helm. Behind it was carved upon the wall and set with gems an image of a tree and flower. But the throne was empty. At the foot of the dais, upon the lowest step, which was broad and deep, there was a stone chair, black and unadorned, and on it sat an old man gazing at his lap. That man that sat there upon that, that stark chair, not upon the throne, was the steward, this man Denethor. And as the story progresses, what you find is that Denethor dreads the day that the real king will come to power, because what's happened is he's become addicted to his kingdom, right? He's become addicted to his glory. He's become addicted to his power, and he doesn't want to give it up, so much so that when he realizes that the true king is on the way to take the throne, he takes his injured son, Faramir, who's been wounded in this battle, and throws him on a funeral pyre and joins him on that funeral pyre and sets the funeral pyre on fire. In other words, what he's saying is, I'd rather die than lose my kingdom. I'd rather die than lose my power. I'd rather die than not have the honor and the glory that I think I deserve that is due me. I don't care who the rightful king is. When the story Faramir fortunately is saved from the funeral pyre, but Denethor commits suicide and dies. Later, when Faramir is healed, he ascends to this position of steward in his father's stead, right? And what's interesting is the question begs very quickly. It says, we're, we're, we're sort of waiting. Is Faramir going to be the kind of steward who is an honorable and noble man who sees the king coming and offers the throne to the rightful king? Here's, again, a section that answers that question from Tolkien. It says this, Aragorn, who's the king, the rightful king, finally arrived and has come into Gondor. It says this, Faramir met Aragorn in the midst of their, those there assembled, and he knelt and said, the last steward of Gondor begs leave to surrender his office. Not only am I offering you your throne, I'm begging you to relieve me of this responsibility. It's too much for me. He goes on to say, it says this, Then Faramir stood up and spoke in a clear voice, Men of Gondor, hear now the steward of this realm. Behold, one has come to claim the kingship again at last. Here is Aragorn, son of Arathorn. Shall he be king and enter into the city and dwell there? And all the hosts and all the people cried, Yea, with one voice. Moments later, when the new king had been crowned, it is Faramir who leads the cries of, behold the king, behold the king. We understand very intuitively what this means, what it costs. We understand very intuitively just why this, this statement of Jesus is so hard. Because we understand that down deep in our hearts, down deep in our souls, what we really long for is our own glory and our own honor and our own kingdom. And the question that Jesus has for us is how many of us, how many of you are willing to lay down your kingdoms at the feet of the one true king? How many of us are willing to steward 
what God has entrusted us with so that when the one true king finally returns, we, like Faramir, might proclaim, behold the king. Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to pay that price to say, this is yours. I beg you, Jesus, to take it from me and to take care of your rightful kingdom, to take your rightful throne. Are you willing to pay that price? Let me call time out here really quickly. On my paper, I have a black line drawn right there after that, because I thought, you know, that's a really good place to end. You know, behold the king, and drop the mic, and I'm done. Anyway, the problem is, if I ended right there, um, what I would be telling you, or maybe insinuating to you, is that there's somehow you could do that. (laughs) That that somehow you could just go, hey, that's a good point. I am going to turn my kingdom over to Jesus. Boom. Mission accomplished. But the reality is, you and I both know that's not possible. And so we have to ask a couple more questions, and I'll make this quick. The only way that this makes any sense at all, right, hate your family, get rid of, you know, basically love Jesus more than your security and your safety, love Jesus more than your wealth, love Jesus more than your kingdom. The only way this makes any sense at all is if it's right and true and just and good. And let me say this very quickly, that if you don't turn it over to Jesus, if you follow the line of Denethor and you say, I'd rather die than give up my kingdom, if you keep your kingdom and your wealth and your safety and security, if you keep anything as sort of the most important thing in your life, if that, that good thing becomes an ultimate thing, it will destroy you. It will turn you into a monster, okay? You'll become a, a monster. Let me, let me tell you why that is. See, Jesus knows that each of these things, wealth and security and safety and kingdom, they're all fine, actually, in and of themselves in the right order, but they can become an idol for any of us. You make an idol of family, what happens? You can become the mafia, right? All of a sudden, anything becomes justifiable in terms of protecting your family, right? right? That's the highest good, so we can kill other people's families in order to protect our family. What's worse is that that might not happen to most of us, probably won't happen to most of us, But one of the things that does happen is that mothers and fathers become so consumed with their families that ultimately they crush their children and drive them away, right? Because their family becomes the ultimate good. It becomes their idol and all of a sudden trumps all of these other good things that can turn you into a monster, right? If if fame or wealth becomes the most important thing to you, then all of a sudden you become Alex Rodriguez, right? Who becomes a monster, he doesn't really care about anything good or noble because he just cares about his own success. Or maybe you become Miley Cyrus, you know, who has frankly become sort of a little monster, right? Because of this desire for fame. And I'm not saying that to throw under the bus. I'm saying, look at what happens when fame and when wealth becomes the most important thing. Everything else gets thrown to the wayside. Look at Lance Armstrong. When your kingdom becomes the most important thing and you'll do anything to protect your kingdom, you become a monster, right? Because they're all good things. But unless Jesus is first in your life, those good things will turn you into a monster and will ultimately destroy those things in your life, right? That's number one. The second thing that I think I have to say in this that's just and right and good is I've got to ask the question this, who in the world has the right to say, you got to love me more than you love your family? Who in the world has the right to say, you got to love me more than you love your financial security? Who in the world has the right to say, you need to love me more than you love your own kingdom, your own life, right? Who has the right to say that? You know, the only person that has the right to say that is God, right? And so Jesus, 2,000 years ago, when he said, you need to hate your family, you need to love me. If you're not willing to put me first, then you can't be my disciple. The only person that has the right to say that is God. And Jesus, in this moment, was saying, guess who's here? 
Guess who's on the scene? Guess who's demanding your faithfulness? Guess who is the one true king waiting to enter into Gondor and to step up to that empty throne and to assume his rightful place? It's only God. That's why only God has the right to say, no other gods, you shall have no other gods before me. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has to say about this idea. C.S. Lewis says this, and I I'm telling you, I'm going to use this quote again in about three months. Sorry, so I'm going to use it twice. But here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I, C.S. Lewis, Oxford professor, have to accept the view that he was and is God. Who has the right to tell you that he has first place in your life? It's only God, and Jesus was God who became a man in order to rescue us, in order to save us, and that's the third thing. Again, if I left you this morning by saying, Turn it all over to God, your wealth, your safety, your security, your kingdom. Give it all over. What I'd be saying is, I'd be saying, use your volitional ability to do that. But the truth is, one of the things that theologians make very clear is that idolatry can never be sort of rooted out by willingness, right? Idolatry can never be rooted out by sort of volitional strength. It'll always be replaced by another idol. In order for idolatry to be rooted out, it always has to be replaced by something that is more beautiful. Does that make sense? Right? It, it can't, you can't just sort of yank it out. Right? What has to happen is that something more beautiful has to sort of work its way into your heart and be more compelling and more glorious and more majestic and more beautiful than whatever that thing was before. That's why in verse 27, we have a hint of Jesus' beauty when he's speaking to these people. In verse 27, he says this, "'Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Because see, what Jesus knows is he said, if you follow me, then you're going to find out where I'm going. And I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I'm on my way to die. And if they were to follow him, right, physically, really to follow him from that place, they would have seen Jesus arrested. They would have seen him tried. They would have seen him placed upon a cross for them and for the sins of all the world. And what they would have seen Jesus doing in that moment is they would have seen Jesus saying, I gave up my safety, I gave up my security, I gave up my wealth, I gave up my kingdom for you. I died on the cross for you, to restore you back to a relationship with my heavenly Father. I died on the cross in your place in order that you might be adopted as daughters and sons of the Most High God. I died on the cross so that you wouldn't have to become a monster or die in darkness, but rather that you might become exactly the human being that God created you to be. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for these hard sayings of Jesus. Um, and Father, I pray that these, these hard sayings would, um, 
would work their way um, from our hearts um, and uh, that they would sort of issue forth into to the way we think and the way that we feel and the way that we act. And Father, I pray that this morning that, um, that each of us that stands in or sits in this room this morning would be faced with the cost of following you, but I pray that we would also be faced with the cost of not following you. Father, I pray that we would believe you and trust you as the one uh, who is the rightful king, who is the one true king. So Father, we wait for you and we offer you your throne in our hearts. In these things we pray, amen.